All right, well, good morning, guys. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope you all are doing well in, uh, out there in Homeland. Uh, those of you who dressed up this morning, well done. Those of you who are dressed, well done. Those of you who are still in your PJs, welcome. Right? Come as you are. That's what we say. Come as you are. All right. Um, my name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and and uh, man, it is my privilege to open the word with you this morning. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Some of you may have forgotten. You don't even know it's Sunday. Some of you are like, isn't it Thursday? Uh, no, for those of you who need a reminder, today is not only Sunday, it is Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday of the triumphal entry. This is the beginning of Holy Week. This is the week. Um, <laughs> we're here, right? So today is Palm Sunday, uh, the day when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a, of a colt and, and um, the, the crowds came out and were singing Hosanna to God in the highest and they were laying down palm leaves before him on his way into the city and, and, and the, the disciples, man, were riding high because they were just confident. Not only was Jesus the Messiah, but the Messiah was entering into the city of Jerusalem to establish the kingdom of God. He was here to deliver them into the righteous reign and, and, and to put an end to the Gentile dominion of God's people. And it was a day, man. It was a day. As Holy Week progresses, um, it becomes fairly clear that Jesus hasn't come to Jerusalem to do what they expect him to do which leads to Judas's betrayal of Jesus on Thursday night, the night of, of the Last Supper where Jesus washes their feet and institutes the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, Maundy Thursday, and that, of course, leads to Good Friday, where early in the morning through a series of kangaroo courts, Jesus is convicted of crimes he never committed and ultimately is handed over to the powers of this world, to be scourged, to be beaten, to be crucified. Which, of course, then leads to Silent Saturday. A day in which the world had been upended and nothing was as it was meant to be. Six short days after the triumphal entry, the disciples are sitting there in the confusion and the brokenness and the loss where their world has been completely turned upside down which of course sets the stage for Resurrection Sunday when Jesus defeats death, comes out of the tomb. And the disciples just start to realize this was all part of God's plan. That to go from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, they had to go through Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Silent Saturday. To go from their false hope to their true hope, they had to go through a season of death. As they were sitting around late Thursday night, after Jesus had predicted that he would be handed over. They knew things were coming, but they hadn't felt the full anxiety of it. And then, of course, that evening in the garden when, when he is, in fact, handed over, all chaos ensues and all the anxiety and the fear and, and the sorrow starts coming in. And then Friday is the reality of the storm lands and, 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 and creates chaos. 
Their worlds are upended. Uh, as a people, as a people, we are, I think, sitting very much in Maundy Thursday right now. Um, it's bad. But we know the worst of it hasn't made land yet. We don't know how bad it's going to get. We're in a season of sorrow. And the reality is we don't do sorrow well as a people, Americans. Uh, we, don't, we don't do sorrow well. It, it tends to fill us with anxiety. We are people that love triumph. <laughs> we, we love to win and we love winners, right? We like to celebrate and we like to go from celebration to celebration, win to win, triumph to triumph. And when things are going bad, man, we don't want to focus or when things are struggling, we don't, we, we don't, want, we don't want to look at it. We just want to fix our eyes on the next on the next win, right? A month ago, we felt invisible. I mean, in, invincible. <laughs> a month ago, we felt invincible. Our economy was buzzing. Our plans were made. My friends were, my plans to get married. People were having parties. People were going to be traveling. We had plans. The blues were looking good, coming into another playoff season. And now we're in a season of sorrow. And we don't do sorrow well. If we're honest, the reality is most of us are cool with Palm Sunday. A false hope that makes us feel good. And we're cool with Resurrection Sunday, a true hope that makes us feel good. What we hate is the space in between. The space that you have to go through from this, this false hope that ultimately is deceptive because our, our hope is in the wrong things that won't deliver us where we want to go, and to get to the true hope that will actually deliver us to what we want, we have to go through this space in between that feels like death, that's marked by loss and sorrow and anxiety. We see the Holy Week repeated in its pattern over and over and over again in our lives, and right now we're going through it as a culture and as a nation. You know, there's something that Jesus never wavered on in his earthly ministry, and that is for us to have true hope, our false hopes must die. Because our false hopes will take us to the wrong place. They lead us to lean on the wrong strength, to, to look for the wrong blessing. And that means that the path to resurrection always goes through the grave. Sorrow, loss, pain, they're all part of God's plan to bless us and set us free. And that means we need to learn how to do sorrow well. We have to learn how to process sorrow in a way that doesn't amplify our anxiety but actually frees us into joy. And that means we need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to be honest with our sorrow, with our fear, with our loss, and with our pain, and hold it honestly while we are simultaneously holding the hope of the gospel in the other hand. Today we're going to be looking at a psalm that can teach us how to do that, can teach us how to lament. It's Psalm 46. So if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 46. It's pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. I don't know what Bible you're using, so I can't give you a page number, but flip to the middle and you're probably going to find Psalms and then you're going to go to Psalm 46. Um, I'm going to read it out loud. And so uh, you can follow along or listen as I, as I read this Psalm. God is our refuge and strength. 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a psalm is uh, a song, right? It was, it was meant to be sung, um, and, uh, and, and it's a poem, right? It, very much like modern songs, it is, it is Hebrew poetry that was set to music. And this poem is set apart in three stanzas, each one with a selah to, to mark the end of the stanza. And it's opened and it's closed by a declaration of faith. So in verse 1 and verse 11, there's a declaration of faith. And then in between, you, you have these, these three stanzas. And, and the declaration of faith that we find in verse 1 and verse 11 are the truth that the, the psalmist uh, wants to point our minds to while our hearts are filled with, with turmoil. Verse 1 and verse 11 point us to the truth that's, that's the, the, the sure rock where we can anchor our minds while our hearts go through the storm, right? Take a look at verse 1. In verse 1, he says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge. God is our, our place of safety. God is our place of protection. God is our rest in time of need. Uh, do you have a refuge? Uh, if you don't, I know you long for one. Uh, if you're in a small house filled with many, many people, your refuge might be the restroom, the only place you can go and lock the door and nobody panics. Um, but, but a refuge is a place where you can pull away and, and regain your sense of security and of safety. It, it's a place where... Where, where there's limited access to you, but more than that, the right access to you. And, and in a refuge, you can, you can find rest. God is our rest. He is our place of, of renewal, of safety. And God is our strength. He then becomes our source of courage, right? He becomes our, 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 our sense of, 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 of energy, in moving out. So, so he, he renews our rest and then renews our courage, right? One is an inward work of renewal. The other is an outward expression of strength. God is our refuge and, and strength, our security for the present and our renewal for the future. A very present help in trouble. The idea behind this is, is that he's, he's very present, right? He is near 
and he is eager to help. God is not only our refuge and strength, he's not far away, he's not distracted, he's, he's not gone, he is, he is ever near and ever mindful and ever eager to come alongside us, to give us rest and security. He is near and he's eager. Verse 2 then, the verse part of it, is, would be the natural outflow of that. Therefore, we will not fear. Right? If God is my refuge and God is my strength and God is ever present and ever near and eager to be, to be my help, to be my rest, to be my courage, therefore we will not fear. This is a declaration of faith that comes from this profound truth. I believe God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Right, I, 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 coming into the Holy Week, we're looking back. This is a God who, who didn't stand apart and, and disengaged from my suffering, but entered into it. This is a God who put on flesh. Jesus himself, he, he lived the life I should have lived, and, and then he died the death I deserved to die. And then he rose again. Right, so, so in his death, he died under the weight of my guilt and my shame, died under the, the, the cosmic treason that I had committed against God. And in Christ, I died. And when he rose, he rose in righteous victory over my sin, in righteous victory over death. And in his rising, I am covered in his righteousness. Who I was is dead. Who I am is made new. I believe God is a God of promises kept and blessings delivered. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Therefore, I will not fear. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is near and he is eager to help. Therefore, I will not fear. I will anchor my hope in the character and in the power of God. See, this makes sense. This is logical, right? At this point, most Christians are like, yeah, I'm totally with you, right? This is, but listen, this is much easier to say than it is to experience when things get crazy. It is, it is a much harder truth to hold on to when the world turns upside down. The next three stanzas take us on a journey. They show us what it's like to, to hold on to this truth when everything else gives way. In the first stanza, everything goes crazy. The mountains melt and the psalmist finds himself in that gut-lurching free fall of having everything give way around him. Take a look at verses 2 and, there, two and 3. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. All right, so um, I didn't like this psalm for the longest time. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Um, I, I got hung up right here. Like right here. I got, I got to these verses and I was like, I can't follow you there. <laughs> I, like I get what you're saying, but I don't think I can, I can get there. Um, this is absolutely one of the most terrifying things that I can imagine happening. I, I know the ocean. I grew up in California, right on the Pacific coast, and, 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 and the Pacific's nothing like the Atlantic, or, or at least, I don't know, I've seen the southern Atlantic, but, but the Pacific Ocean is powerful, especially in northern California where I was. Man, it is incessant. It pounds. It is, it is beautiful, but it is dangerous. 
I know the water. And you learn to respect it. Every year, some tourist would die somewhere along the coast. Somebody who didn't respect the power, didn't understand how it worked, they'd be out there standing and they wanted to get the splash of the wave behind them in, in some photo. Uh, this was before selfies, so they always had helpers. But um, uh, every year, every year, um, 24 hours later, they'd find that person's beaten, bruised, and mangled body washed up on the shore. I mean, that's, that's the reality of what I grew up with. And so when I read this, um, man, you're standing on a solid rock full of confidence, not aware that there's any problem at all, and it suddenly gives way beneath you, and you have that sick lurch in your stomach of weightlessness as you are plummeting down in free fall, and nothing is secure. And in fact, nothing is secure because the mountains themselves are falling away into this dark, foaming rage. In a moment, nothing is what you thought it was. In a moment, your confidence is completely destroyed. In a moment, what you thought was strong melts away in weakness. Y'all, that's terrifying. These verses are terrifying. This dark water foaming and coming up to swallow you in your weakness. Man, it is one of my worst nightmares. Selah. So Selah is a... Is a, is a a funny little word that, that since this is a song, it could be a musical notation that is saying prelude or, or take a break or, or, or you know, there's, there's like a chorus here or something. Um, but in poetry, we think it just means to pause, to reflect. So the psalmist is telling us, all right, hold on a sec. Before you move on from this terrifying image, just take a minute. Take a minute. Think about it. This is a visceral description of what it feels like when our confidence gives way. When what we thought was sure turns out to be missed. What we thought was solid rock melts into the sea. When people let us down, when financial security collapses, when, when, when our sure hopes not only don't come to fruition, but betray us. That hurts. That's scary. That's terrifying. And it's personal. That last word where it says, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, in the Hebrew, this carries kind of the idea of boasting. So, so the waves are being personified as they are foaming and raging and coming to swallow the mountain. It's almost as if they are boasting against, in a, in a malevolent sense, against this false strength, like it is in, intentional, like it is evil. We often, in the moment that our strength is exposed for weakness, in the moment where what we thought was sure turns out to be uh, not sure. We often in that moment feel like we're being attacked. And we often in that moment, instead of crying out to God, cry out against Him. We mistake the malevolence that we feel to be that of God. We thought this was sure. We thought we were secure. It is your fault that it is not. When the disciples 
got to Thursday and Friday and found that, that the Messiah was crucified. We don't have detailed accounts of what they went through, but I can only imagine that they not only felt great sorrow, but they probably felt great betrayal and anger. They had, they had sold everything on this hope, sold everything on this hope, and it fell down around them. We mistake the loss of our temporal hopes for the loss of all hope. We, we mistake the, 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 the false hopes we had on Palm Sunday for the true hope that God has established for us. We, we mistake our plan for God's plan. And when our plan doesn't come to fruition, we blame God because we, we are convinced He is simply thwarting us from getting the blessing we think we deserve. And all we see is darkness. The raging storm, the, the foaming water coming up to swallow us. In the second stanza, in the second stanza, we're going to see a change in metaphor. We're going to see a city besieged by a raging and powerful enemy. But there is a clear shift in focus and in tone. Take a look at verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Man, you read through these verses, and, and, and it describes another terrifying scene, but you can almost miss it because the tone has changed so, so dramatically, right? In this scene, um, the psalmist isn't being swallowed up by terror, even though he's in a terrifying situation. The psalmist in these verses is in a city that's under siege. And it's in the middle of the night. It's dark. And so he is, he is in this city, and all that separates him in the darkness of night from the raging nations... And the description here is, is, is scary, right? They are raging. It says the kingdoms totter. It's like they are so mad. They are so enraged that they are senseless. They are heedless of their own safety. They, they are tottering. They are throwing themselves against the walls. So while he is in this city in the middle of the night, there's the sound of the raging enemies throwing themselves against the walls of the fortress, against the walls of the city, seeking to devour them, to destroy them, and you can hear their fury. But you can almost miss how terrifying this situation was because the psalmist doesn't focus on the enemy. In these verses, there's a shift. He's, he's not focused on the enemy. He's focused on the fortress, right? In verse 7, he says, the God of Jacob is our fortress, right? Martin Luther loved this psalm. A mighty fortress is our God was, came out of this, right? The, the God of Jacob is our fortress. In verse 6, when this God utters his voice, the very earth melts away, which is a source of comfort for the psalmist, but terror for those that are attacking the city of God. Verse 5, the walls are secure. Why? Because God is in the midst of her. 
God is in this city. God is the city. God is the fortress. And God is in the city with them. The nearness of God isn't just an abstract truth. It's not just good theology. It is a very, very present comfort to him. And even though the city is under siege and in darkness, God will help when the morning dawns. Right? He knows that, that while it is dark and while there is simply the, the cries and the screams of the enemies throwing themselves against the walls, he simply has to look to the east and wait for the dawning of the sun. Because God will show up exactly when he means to show up. Because God never shows up too late and God will never show up early. God will show up at the exact moment he has already decided he will show up to deliver. You know, in the ancient time, one of the most important things for a fortified city was to have a source of fresh water because if you had a source of fresh water in your city, you could withstand a siege indefinitely. You could grow your own crops. You could, you could take care of yourself. And in this city, the city of God, this, this refuge that is God himself, through it, is a stream whose waters make glad. A source of fresh water. A source of life. Right? Because water symbolizes life. Water, water symbolizes the, the very vibrancy and the goodness and, and, and the fullness. And, and these streams are so pure that they make glad. Selah. What changed? between the first stanza and the second stanza. The first stanza was filled with terror, instability, weakness. The second stanza, it's not that there isn't fear, but the fear is quieted. In the second stanza, there is rest, almost, almost, almost like he could sleep even as the city is under siege while he's simply waiting for the dawn to come. Very clearly, the psalmist has shifted his focus. The enemy hordes are only mentioned once in these verses. Only once, and then almost in passing. He's not focused on the enemies assaulting the walls. He is focused on the God who is the walls. He's focused on God who is the fortress. He is focused on God who is the host of the army of heaven. He, he, he dwells in the city. He is the city. He is the fortress. And he is the chief of the army. He's focused on God. And the stream that flows through the city. This refreshing stream that renews his experience of the love of God and the grace of God. This beautiful stream that I think powerfully symbolizes the gospel, the good news that God is for us and loves us, that God has not abandoned us or left us. This good news that God has won for us what we can never win for ourselves and offers it to us as a free gift of grace to be received simply in trust by faith. This is a stream that we come back to again and again. And every time we do, we are made glad. Every time we do, we can look up from that stream and once again feel rest. Because our fear is calmed 
And sorrow is comforted knowing that we have a God who is not distant from our suffering, but present with us in it, who actually entered into it to deliver us from it. Even though the darkness throws itself against the walls, raging and foaming and seeking to destroy, the psalmist is at rest. Because the morning will come. And God will speak. And the enemy's strength will melt away into nothing. So we see an emerging rest in the second stanza. And in the third stanza, we see an emerging courage. I picture him on this third courage, uh, this third stanza, standing on the wall in a place where he can proclaim not only to, to um, the people within the city, the fellow inhabitants of the city of God, but he can proclaim over the raging hordes, the nations that are in madness throwing themselves against the walls of God seeking to devour. I picture him standing high above the city, calling on both. And when you read these words in that context, these are words of incredible comfort for the people of God and incredible terror for his enemies. Take a look at verses 8 through 10. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Come. Behold the works of the Lord. God will, with a word, bring desolations to those who bring desolation. God will, with a word, bring violence against the tools of violence. God will, with a word, silence the raging. And with a word, Make wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Verse 10 is one of the most comforting and chilling verses in the whole Bible. Remember that he is speaking to both those that are in the city and to those that are out. Be still and know that I am God. At a word, the raging of the enemy will be silenced. And in all of his perceived strength, he will be frozen in his weakness. As he hears these words of judgment, be still and know that I am God. He will be locked in terror. At a word. At a word. These same words will bring profound and immeasurable comfort to the weak and the helpless and the bedraggled who have come to God not in their strength but in their weakness, who have come to God not claiming a thing but coming desperate for grace. Be still and know that I am God. 
in that moment. The broken heart, yearning for grace, will be covered in the very presence of the love of God. The broken heart, yearning for comfort in its sorrow, will be embraced by the creator of that heart. The one who knows what a broken heart is and uniquely can bring comfort to it. In that moment, the anxious heart that is so worried about all the loose ends of life will be calmed and find rest in the God who never loses sight of a single detail. In that moment, there will be stillness of love and bounty of grace and comfort and rest. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, verse 11 concludes with an echo of of the declaration of faith we saw in verse 1. Right? In verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The the captain of the army, right? Not only is he in the city, he is the Lord of hosts, he is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Rest and courage. Safety and boldness. He concludes with a declaration of faith. God is with us. He is a mighty fortress. And in Him, we are as secure as He is powerful. Selah. Selah. Two weeks ago, we spent some time looking at Colossians chapter 3. At at that incredible, incredible truth that Paul reveals to the Colossians that, that my life, as a believer in Jesus, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? Because, because my sin was taken by Christ on the cross and His righteousness, His act of obedience was given to me. I am now as righteous as Christ is righteous and my life is hidden with Christ in God. He is my fortress. He is my refuge. No matter what else happens because Jesus died and rose again, this is true. By grace, through faith, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Nothing can touch that. This is what empowered the psalmist to rise up over his fear. This is what empowered Paul to sing of victory even while he was shackled in prison, while he was suffering the betrayal of friends and the sorrow of loss and and the limitation of freedom and the vulnerability of his human body. He could hold in one hand the sorrows and the joy. He could hold in one hand the vulnerability and the hope. This is what empowers every believer in Jesus to find joy in the dark times of sorrow and anxiety. So how do we get there? Right? Is it, is it, is it just the, the spiritual giants of the psalmists that are able to make these, these incredible leaps from complete instability, loss and sorrow 
to complete confidence, joy, and security. You know, to take a super, a super saint like Paul. Right? Somebody who, who clearly had tools we didn't have. No. That's the beauty of it. The psalmist was no different than us. Paul was no different than us. The only one that was different from us is Jesus. And he had to himself work his way through finding security and sorrow. How do we get from Palm Sunday filled with false hope to Resurrection Sunday filled with true hope? You have to go through Thursday and Friday. You have to learn to walk through the sorrow. You have to learn to walk through the fear with faith. Which means you have to learn how to refocus your vision in the trial. You have to learn how to re-anchor your hope when what you thought is not what will be. You have to find your strength not in your plan, but in His. Because you have to learn how to trust Him more than you trust yourself. And for this, you need to learn how to lament. A lament is a unique form of prayer where we hold simultaneously our pain and our hope, our sorrow and our joy, our loss and our faith. Lament is learning how to bring this pain to God instead of lifting up as an accusation against God. Lament is what enables us, instead of grumbling, to move into groaning. Grumbling is when, when the betrayal of life feels like a betrayal from God, and so we lift up our hearts in accusation against God. Grumbling is when we recognize that the brokenness of life, the result of sin, is exactly why Jesus came to die and to rise again, to deliver us from it into something better, that he himself entered into it and he himself suffered with us, not to destroy us, but to deliver us. See, groaning is when we come to one who understands our pain and we groan with him about our pain. We come to one who understands our sorrow. We come to one who understands our loneliness. We come to one who understands our confusion. And we, and we come to him with our pain knowing we are met by someone who deeply understands that pain. Lament. It keeps our sorrow from spoiling into bitterness. It keeps our pain from going bad and becoming entitlement. Lament is what allows sorrow to ripen into joy. It's how we go from fear to courage, from anxiety to rest. Because lament is a powerful tool that shifts our focus from the enemy to the fortress, from my fear to God's promises, from my weakness to his strength. So I want to I give you a simple tool this morning. There are many prayers of lament in Scripture, and there are many different ways to lament. I just want to give you one this morning that I think may be helpful to you and to your families. I would encourage you 
to turn the first two verses of, of our psalm into a prayer. A prayer of lament for you and for your friends and, and if your parents. You can do this at home with your kids. Right? You can do it in private, in your journal. But you can do it around the dinner table. Right? With the kids, this is something that, that, that lament it can be private, but often it's very, very powerful when we do it with those who are also suffering with us. And, and very simply, it's this. It's, it's starting in the truth where we want to anchor our minds and moving into the reality that seeks to unmoor our hearts. Right? It, it, is, it is anchoring ourselves in, in this unchangeable truth while at the same time being honest and vulnerable and open about the condition of our hearts. The Lord is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble. I will not fear, though. How would you finish that sentence? What fear is threatening to grip your heart and pull it down into darkness? What sorrow is is threatening to, to... to lead you not, not, not just to pain, but to despair. What anxiety, um, anticipatory sorrow, right? A lot of, there's a lot of that going on right now. We know a storm is coming. We don't know how fully it's going to impact or who it's going to be hurting. And many of us are just wrapped up in this anticipatory sorrow. We're looking ahead to what could be. What anxiety is seeking to rob you of all of your rest and all of your courage? The Lord is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble. I will not fear, though, and fill in the blank. Like, just say it out loud. I will not fear, though, my 401k tanks. Just say it out loud. Say it with your family. Say it with your friends. Say it, but just say it, right? Because in doing so, what you're doing is bringing to light this fear that would love to stay in the darkness. And unexposed to the broader truth of the gospel. I, 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 I will not fear, though I get sick. I will not fear, though I get laid off. I will not fear, though I cannot protect those that I love. And some of you right now are like, Steve, I can't go there. I can't go there. If I go there, there's too much fear, too much sorrow, too much anxiety. I would rather distract myself. I would rather just hope it doesn't happen and not think about it and not engage and pretend it's not real. How's that working for you? I'll tell you how it's working for you. Buried sorrow gives birth to anxiety. Buried sorrow gives birth to anger, bitterness, entitlement. Buried sorrow gives birth to fear. It'll leave you exhausted. Some of you are going to feel like you need to sleep. 12 hours a day. Some of you are going to be filled with so much nervous energy that you, you're going to feel like you need to be continually moving, but you'll find it so, so difficult to be genuinely productive. And the end result of that path is despair, exhaustion, and emptiness. The sacking of the city. Look, y'all, suffering 
It's inevitable in this life. Suffering is an invitation to admit what has always been true, that we are creatures made of dust. From dust we have come, and to dust we shall return. We are weak, and we are often foolish and short-sighted, and we are not sufficient for these things. But God is. God is. God is our fortress. God is the chief over the armies of heaven. God resides within this city with us. Learn to lament, to put your weakness into words. And in doing so, you turn that into a prayer to the God who can strengthen your heart and help you find courage in his strength and find refuge in his love and to find comfort in his promises. Steve, I'm sorry, I just can't finish the sentence. I can't say I don't fear it, right? I can't say, though, I, I, I will not fear, though. I, it's, it's a lie. All right. It's a statement of faith. It's not a commitment of your will. It's not an action that you're committing yourself to achieve. It is a statement of faith. Because this is true of God, I will by faith declare this true of me. And in doing so, you will discover more strength than you knew you had. Listen, there's nothing wrong with you if you struggle to give your anxiety to God. There's nothing wrong with you if you struggle to give your sorrow to God. There's nothing wrong with you. You are simply in the first stanza, which is where we all have to start. You need to grow in, in your experience of grace to grow in your experience of faith. And you do that by coming to the river that runs through it, that makes glad. The river of God's grace, the river of God's love, the river of, of, his, of his comfort. You have to lament. And you have to keep lamenting. You have to keep bringing your sorrow. You have to keep bringing your pain. You have to keep bringing your hurt to God who will reach out to you to comfort you in it. You need to keep reminding your head that God is your refuge and your fortress even when your heart feels like it's in free fall. That's how you get to the second stanza. That's how you get to the third stanza. You keep reminding yourself until your heart can take peace and find courage. And then you keep on reminding your heart. Our God is our refuge and our strength. I will not fear. I will not fail. I will not be swallowed by the sorrow. I will not be destroyed. And I will not lose what I have entrusted to him. Y'all, we're under siege. We need to drink deeply of the stream that runs through our city, this stream of God's love and of grace, the stream of the gospel. And remind ourselves over and over and over that our greatest debt has already been paid. Our greatest problem has already been solved. And our greatest blessing has already been given. I'd love to pray for you before we move into our time of communion. Um, so let me just pray. Let me pray with me. Father, I thank you. The Lord, you are um, not only the God of Jacob, but you are the God of Steve. And, and you, are, you are the God of Edwardsville. And you are the God of Trailhead Church. And you are, you are God of the United States. You, you, you are the God over the nations. 
And you invite everyone into the safety of the fortress. You invite us all to draw near, knowing, Lord, that the door has been opened by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We, we can come in by grace and grace alone by simply trusting in that finished work. In this season of instability, Lord, will you throw these gates wide open and away that many will enter. Many who are far from you will be brought near. Many who are struggling to know you might believe in you, trust in you. And that, Lord, you will draw us as those in the city back to the stream to be renewed by the fountain of love, these waters that make heart, hearts glad. Help us, Lord, to be those who grow strong in our rest. Help us to be those who grow strong in a faith that gives courage. Help us, Lord, to grow strong purely because you are strong. Lord, we do pray again that you might have your hand of protection on our doctors and our nurses, our technicians, our medical professionals, the janitors who work in those buildings, our first responders and those working in social services, those that are working in the front lines of human suffering to continue to bring aid even at great risk to themselves. God, protect them and bless them as only you can. And we thank you for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.